Amen. Amen. Thanks, Matt. Um, I noticed no one cheered when Matt said it's going to be about sex. Because someone want to appear like they're super excited about this this morning. Um, even now, you're uncomfortably laughing at that. Uh, my own daughter, when she, uh, we don't know at what time she found out about this particular series. She goes, Dad, you're going to do great this morning, but I'm going to help uh, the children upstairs, okay, if that's okay with you. She goes, that's a little uncomfortable for me. She refers to it as S-E-X. So this morning's about S-E-X uh, for the rest of us. Um, but it's an, it's an important topic uh, for us to, uh, to deal with. I'm going to be in the book of 1 Corinthians. If you want to turn there, if you don't have a Bible, would you raise your hand and someone would love to bring you a Bible. If that's your first Bible, you go ahead and keep that Bible uh, otherwise, we would love for you to return it so that we can have it for others. The reason why this is so important um, is an, a number of reasons, I would say. Um, probably first and foremost, we just live in an over-sexualized culture. It's just so hard, really, to go anywhere in this world without having to somewhere deal with things of this nature, that's why we called our series The Nature of Things, is that we want to go back to the original design for sex. Um, how many of you, first of all, don't worry, I'm not going to ask you really awkward questions. How many of you, bad segue, just, just for all preachers in the future, how many of you really love owner's manuals? You, you like owner's manuals? Like you get something from Ikea and the first thing you do is pull out that manual and make sure you know it front to back, Right? Wrong, right? Any guys here ever looked at an owner's manual? Ever? Ever looked at instructions? Right? We tip, I, I do, um, but only because I mess up and I wonder, what, what is that for? Now, what's interesting is that we often, like in, in the glove compartment of the vehicle that we have, there's an owner's manual, and very few of us refer to that before we buy the vehicle, maybe, or use the vehicle, but if you look in that owner's manual, what you will actually see is you will see the designed purpose for that vehicle. And it will literally say throughout the manual, if you're not using the vehicle in this way, we can't guarantee that it's going to work properly. Uh, they say, and then some of it's just kind of, you know, I, I, don't, I don't know why they put, but if you don't use, you know, Ford parts, your Ford vehicle will break down. It's like, no, it'll break down anyways, but without the parts... <laughs> But seriously, they, they say this, if you don't understand what the purpose is for this vehicle, then we can't guarantee that it's going to work properly for you. If you want a warranty on something, the warranty will say, if you're using this for its intended purpose, then it will work. If you use your Ikea lock table as a hammer, we're not guaranteeing you, everyone has a lock table, right? Remember the lock table? We're not guaranteeing you that this thing is going to last. You've got to use it as a table in your college dorm or if you can't afford it the rest of your life. I think we need to think about sex in this way. And so we need to kind of clear off the schedule. Uh, we need to clear the palate, so to speak, in our brains because the culture has told us certain things about sex and what sex is for and how to use it and how to do it. Um, and it's for the most part, not used properly. Christians are scared of this word. We're scared of this word, right? Like in, in a normal course, like if, if this was maybe a Wednesday night sitting with, we're having a party and you say the word sex, you'd have cheers. Here it was like, <laughs> I better not be the only one laughing at that joke. 
Bible doesn't see sex this way. We'll get into that. But we need a fresh look at sex. And I think there's a particularly helpful scripture for us to look at. It's found in the book of 1 Corinthians. It's, as you can see, it's in about that part of your Bible. Uh, turn in your app there. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Now this is what's so interesting about this particular passage is that I think it will help us deal almost better than some passages have in the past with a lot of things. First thing I think we'll find out about this text is that we'll find out the cultural view of sex. Like sometimes we have to look at our culture to understand, but actually our text shares a lot of, the, the text culture, the people that, that, that were first in the culture that this book and this letter was written to are very similar to our culture in terms of how they think about sex. And so I think there's going to be some help here in, in walking through some of the cultural views of sex. I think we're going to find out a little bit about a little bit. I'm not going to answer everything for all those of you who are like, hopefully this is like the best. No, it's not going to be everything that we've ever talked about. But hopefully we're going to see some images of the purposes of sex and then what to do. And where, where do we go from here? That's most of the time our question. When we hear something from God, from God's word, we say, okay, God, you've said this. Now what? Now what do we do? And the text actually, I think, helps us with that. So the cultural view of sex, the design of sex, and where do we go from here? I have to read the text out for you so that you know where we're going with it. So starting in chapter 6, verse 12. And I'm going to read all the way through to 20. And this is what God's word says. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. And, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. And the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know then that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God with your body. This is God's word for us. I want you to, you, as we kind of get going here, we're going to talk then about, I, I, I think I, I need some help there running through, Matt. Mine is, uh, we, we want to talk through this cultural view of, of sex. And you'll notice the word uh, sexual immorality popped up in that particular text a number of times. Um, sometimes I think this has been translated fornication. Um, that's what the culture now uses to make fun of Christians, um, that they're going away to fornicate. They say things like that. Uh, it's not a word that we use a lot. I think it's not as helpful of a word as the, just going back to the original word, the Greek word, porneia. 
I know as soon as I say the word porneia, you understand that that is a root word. That's where we get pornography from. And porneia really is a, is a junk drawer term for anything, any kind of sexual activity outside of marriage between a man and a woman. Now, hear what I said there. Any sexual misconduct or activity outside of the context of a marriage between a man and a woman. That's a big list, isn't it? Again, last week we kind of talked about um, what Jesus said about same-sex marriage, and sometimes our cultural arguments are, well, Jesus never said anything about this, or Paul never said anything about the word pornography, and so therefore we can use it, or we can see it, or it's harmless. That's not true at all. The Bible's very clear that you, you just find that a, a, a term that generally describes everything and it becomes the junk drawer type of word. Because there's always a loophole Larry in all of us, right? You have a loophole Larry in you. Because you're looking for loopholes in God's word all the time. I know you are because I do too. You're looking for, well, does it mean this or does it say this? Well, Jesus doesn't say anything about that. Or, you know what, Jesus couldn't possibly understand our context and our culture. We have such a, you know, and really this is to say nobody really has any sort of thing to say outside of this. That pornea is sexual immorality. Sexual immorality is anything that's outside of the marriage bed. Now, right there, that is countercultural, is it not? Even within the church, sometimes that is countercultural. We don't talk about this a lot. But this is the, we already see the design of sex. And so, right in the very first, you know, couple of paragraphs or first couple of sentences, we see that there's this statement made about sexual immorality. So, keep that in mind as we go through. But this passage has a context, and, and, and none of us really like to be taken out of context. Has anyone eavesdropped on you and overheard something, and, and then you said, no, no, that's not what I meant. I meant this. Everybody has a context. We don't like being taken out of context, and so we really have to see the context that the whole book is in. Here, here's what this particular book is about. This is a letter written to a young church plant. Are you seeing the connections maybe to us already? So a new church filled with relatively new Christians who are relatively aware of the culture around them. Does that already sound a little bit like our context, where we are, who we are? And this young church, they had a lot of loophole Larrys in their church, or loophole Lindras. Sorry, I want to be inclusive here. So they had a lot of loophole Larry and Lindas. They asked a lot of questions I'm sure they would have sent a lot of emails. This is a really long thread to an email that the Corinthian church wrote back to Paul and said, hey, Paul, now that we follow Jesus, what can we do? Can we do this? Should we do this? What about this? I'm sleeping with this. Is that all right? I'm sleeping with this. I don't really care what you think. This is cool, right? And so there's, there's a sense in which Paul has to write back and carefully answer every question in the thread and then just consistently knock these things off. And so the context is there's a bunch of people that, that previ- in the previous paragraph that Paul basically says, you, you used to be like this and now you are not. Before you met Jesus, some of you were thieves. 
Some of you are sexually immoral. Some of you are idolaters. Some of you practice homosexuality. Some of you are greedy. Some of you are drunkards. Some of you are swindlers. He says, that's what you used to be. That's the description of someone before they meet God. You see, even there's kind of almost an identity. Before you met the God of the universe, your identity was in what you did. But when you became a Christian, your identity is now in what Jesus did. That is the gospel, friends. This is so important to get as we talk about these issues of immorality because otherwise what happens is that some of you come and you hear some good moral teaching and you say, oh, the preacher in the Bible says don't do these things because it's bad for you and it's not the best way that God wants you to be. And so you go out and you try hard not to sin and it works for like 40 seconds And then you realize that it's impossible to do. You need something else. And we used to talk about like this with our children. You don't need to stop sinning. You need a new heart. So let's pray that Jesus helps create a brand new heart in you. You need to be hardwired differently. Because you're going to struggle to just follow this moral teaching. What I don't want you to hear this morning is don't have sex outside of the marriage bed between a man and woman because that's not what Christians do. That's not the way the Bible talks about it at all. What Paul is trying to say is, let's go back to the owner's manual. Let's find out what this is really created for. And once you start understanding what this is created for, then maybe there's implications on how you live. And he said, not maybe, there is implications then on how you will treat this thing and how will you begin to think and how you will train your mind to think this way. It's interesting, these little phrases here, all things are lawful for me, but all, not all things are helpful. You see that in the text if you're reading in 1 Corinthians 6.12, all things are lawful for me, but I will be, not be dominated by anything. You might see that there's little... Uh, quotations around that. Now, scholars aren't perfectly sure whether it's the church that came up with these slogans or the culture. I tend to think it's probably a little bit of both. You have that, right? You have those cultural narratives that just drive you, that, that no one really unchecks, or, or you, you kind of almost, you, you spin them in a Christian way. Think about our cultural narratives Like, even when it doesn't come to the issue of sex, like, I can do anything. Cultural narrative, right? I could be anything I want. You know what my six-year-old's response to that was? I can't be a frog. (laughs) It's a cultural narrative that, for the most part, has gone vastly unchecked. Now, what is that cultural narrative trying to say? Try hard, do your best, pursue things? Yes. But I can do anything? Sorry, you can't be a frog. You're right. The fairy tales are wrong. The frog cannot become a prince. The frog is a frog. There's all kinds of cultural narratives that are going on in our culture in regards to sex, aren't there? Tons. In fact, the majority of our cultural narratives are somehow related to the pursuit of sexual freedom. Like, I, what's, what's some of the most recent ones? I need to be me. I need to be who I am. If it feels good, do it. Shouldn't I be allowed to be happy? I deserve to be happy. 
McDonald's, I deserve a break today. You see, these cultural narratives that swim around in our culture and honestly go terribly unchecked for the most part. And sometimes we as Christians, we just take them on. And we assume that because there's an element of truth in them that, that really that's, that's from God, but that's not true. And here's what Paul says. Your cultural narrative is this. All things are lawful for me. What that's translated as is I'm free to do what I want to do. Does that sound like our culture? I'm free, aren't I? I have free will. I got free choice. I'm free, 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 free. I can do what I want. I can do anything. There's songs about this. I can do anything. Right? All things are lawful for me. This is what they've picked up and they've left it unchecked. He says, yeah, but let's just think about this for a second. You're free to do anything, but if you do anything, is it always helpful? You can be anything, but is that anything that you want to be? Does that actually contribute to society? So he's starting to argue from inside their cultural narrative and say, wait a second, wait a second, wait a second. Did you think at all about what you are just living your life around? All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. What he's trying to say is, yes, there's a sense in which Jesus Christ, when he comes into our lives, when we allow him to take control of our lives, we are freedom. Any Christian ever tell that to you as they're smoking a big fat cigar? Freedom in Christ, right? As they're drinking their face off, freedom in Christ. As they're doing what they want, hey, I've got freedom in Christ. I've heard it before. I've said it before. Paul says, hey, if you think that doing whatever you want to do in whatever way you want to do brings freedom, you're wrong. He said, ultimately, any freedom that you think you have to do anything becomes slavery. Now think about this carefully. This is fascinating. Think it through your own life. I'm not asking you to raise hand. I'm asking you to do a self-inventory here and look at your own life and ask yourself, the things that you say you're so free to do, have they brought you freedom or have they made you a slave? So that you begin, what's a, what, what's a slave to someone? You're helpless. You have to do it. I remember, and I've said this before, I've used this often, that I talked once to an alcohol, uh, alcoholic who probably started out with the cultural narrative, I'm free to partake of God's fermented goodness. Here's what that turned into. He said, alcohol started to determine everything in my life. Alcohol determined when I got up. Alcohol determined when I went to bed. Alcohol determined who I hung out with. Alcohol determined my budget, my job, my schedule. That doesn't sound like freedom to me. That sounds like slavery. And this is exactly what Paul is saying. Before you think that sexual freedom is the way forward for you, remember that ultimately it will lead to slavery. I know it sounds good. I know our cultural narrative says, ah, it's harmless. What's our cultural narrative say? Hey, I'm just window shopping. If I don't touch it, I don't hurt it. I've heard that from Christians. It doesn't hurt to look. Our culture basically begs us to look. I mean, my daughter's in grade six. And it's in our schools. 
Sex is everywhere. I mean, there's a, there's a long list I have of how this is damaging our culture, how this cultural freedom is just completely damaging to our entire culture. Paul says, let me take down your narrative. Let me tell you that this is not the way forward. He gives good reasons. And this has to be our approach to this. Is not like, is it okay to do this and not this? Is it okay to have sex before marriage but, but not sleep around with multiple partners? Is it okay to keep your clothes on but do everything else? It, like, is it okay? It, it's this sense in which, and, and I have a six-year-old, so I know this. I've watched this of my six-year-old and my 11-year-old. You say, there's the line. What do they do to it? Don't cross the line. What will they do? Get right there. I'll get right. I'm not crossing it. Whoa. Can I do this? <laughs> so my kid did one time. Kick in the back of my seat. I don't know about you. I don't think there's anything more annoying in the whole world. <laughs> Maybe sanding drywall over your head. Maybe. But getting kicked in the back seat while I'm driving is arguably one of the most annoying things in the world to me. So I get this thump, thump, thump. Stop that. Can I do this? Can I hold it there? Can I hold both feet? Can I kick past your seat? Because that's what we do. That's the problem with our hearts. Is we don't just look at the owner's mat. We want to see what we can do with this thing before it, it compl is completely destroyed. And Paul says, really? I, I mean, honestly, he could have said that in the text. Really? You think this is the way forward? Well, let me show you. It's not the way forward. What is the way forward? What is the way forward? It's the next one, the, the purpose of sex. I, I could talk about the verse that is, is up there, but I won't. The purpose of sex. So he begins to, to say that the, the body's not meant for this. The body's not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. I, I'm not going into detail here because I know I don't need to go in detail. You likely have the details in you. And you know and understand what I'm saying when I say that. But he says, the body is not meant for pornea. Uh, uh, is there a more countercultural word in our culture? Your, your body is not meant for that? I mean, don't we hear the exact opposite? Your body is meant for this, so do it. Isn't that the argument? For a lot of even the gender confusion, your body is meant for this, so your brain is wrong. So you got to change things around. You, you got you to fulfill your appetite. You, you just got to scratch that itch. That's your right as a human. And Paul says, it's not your right as a human. When you become a Christian, you give your life, you give your body, not just your spirit, but your body to Jesus. We've talked about this a number of times in our series, how really the true definition of discipleship is not I raised my hand and said I would be more interested in knowing about Jesus. The definition of a disciple is said, here is my life, here is my mission, here is my spirit, here is my body, here is my wallet, here is my relationships, here is everything in my life. You have it, you design it, you get to tell me what to do with it. That's the definition of Christian. 
Why do you think there aren't more of them? This is a hard word for every one of us. This is a hard word even when we believe this. This is an impossible word when we believe this. That is an impossibility. Unless Jesus, what? Changes your heart and creates a new heart that longs to have Jesus in charge of it. That longs to take you off the throne and have Jesus put in his place. So Paul says... You're not meant for this. And here's what he says. He's something very, very strange. So the Corinthian believers were, were assuming this idea of, they, they had another cultural narrative. It's, it's right there in verse 13. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. I know you, you guys use this all the time, right? No, it sounds really weird to us. Here's what this means. The food is meant for the stomach, stomach for the food. That's what it means. It's this idea of, hey, if, I, if I just eat stuff and my body's going to be resurrected anyways, then what I do with my body doesn't matter. Is that like a narrative that you use sometimes? doesn't really matter what I do with my body because I'm going to go see Jesus one day. It's fatalist kind of understanding of the world, actually. Says it doesn't, it doesn't make a difference. Jesus saves my spirit. So therefore, if my spirit is saved, it doesn't really matter what happens to my body. Here's the problem with that. Jesus was resurrected in a body. That's the argument. Have you ever heard that before? Avoid sexual immorality because what you do with your body carries through to the next world. Have you ever heard, I, my mind was blown when I heard this. Take care what happens to your body, what you do with your body, because what body you have is going to be resurrected and made new. And the cultural narrative that the Corinthian believers thought was, because this is how food works, and it's, you know, it's, it's, it seemed obvious to them that food wouldn't really carry through in the same way to the next world, so therefore sex doesn't carry through into this, in the same way into the next world. And Paul says that's false. Let's go back to the owner's manual and see what sex is actually for and what's it about. Do you not know that your bodies are memory? Do you not know, he says. Now, I know, I get it. You guys don't know, and, I, and, and I'm well aware of that. You got to go back to Genesis 22. 222 to 24. Most of the biblical writers, when they actually start talking about marriage and marriage relationships, they always refer to this. The one sermon I said four times, it's almost a direct quote, and here's what it says. This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. This is, this is the man singing a song. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Ultimately, what you see in that passage is that here is the owner's manual view of sex. It's made to glue a marriage together. That's what it's made for. You guys ever use glue improperly? How's that work? Right? You ever try and adhere? Uh, like one writer, Sam Albury, I think he likened this. He said, sex in some ways, you can't take the metaphor too far, of course. He said, it's like a post-it note. 
When you use the post-it note adhesive the first time, it's pretty good, right? You stick it on a paper, it stays there basically until you remove it. What happens when you remove that post-it note and put it on multiple pages? You lose the adhering factor. It becomes kind of irrelevant. It becomes just another little yellow sheet of paper. And Paul says, this is essentially what happens when you don't treat sex like it's supposed to be. It has some adhering qualities. That won't change. But it kind of loses its effectiveness. It loses its original design when you misuse it. This would explain why some of you who have had difficult sexual pasts or multiple sexual partners, sex seems to, seem, seems to mean less and less to you. It's because it's not being used for its original design. Within the context of marriage, it is a great gift. I can proudly say that, unashamedly say, in our marriage, it's been very helpful. I love it. Of course I do. I'm a guy, right? But one of the things I love about it is its adhering quality. It reminds me that I was made one flesh with my wife, that God gave me a gift. This is my best friend. This is my closest friend. This is my gospel companion. This is the person who helps see my sin better than anyone else. This is the person who, over time, after using this gift properly to adhere to my wife, I start to think as one, not two. You see that? That's what it's for. That's what it's for. Every time you don't use it properly, you're adhering yourself to things that don't belong. To things that will make it difficult. To things that will bring you trouble. Yes, there is some moral teaching here. I understand that. But do you understand how this is not simply a moral thing for Paul? Like in high school, I, I went to a youth group. Yes, I grew up as a Christian. And here's what they said. Don't do it because, because. That famous argument you always hear from your parents that you hate, right? Because I said so. Most of the time we've said, because God said so. No, God's saying, because. It's not what I designed it for. This isn't God wanting our least. This is God wanting our best. Some people are so afraid to trust God with their sexual life because they're terrified that he doesn't have their ultimate pleasure in mind. But we do. God says, no, I actually designed it. I know what I'm talking about. I know what I designed this for. Feels good? Yes, I know. I made it that way. Makes a family? Yes, I know. I made it that way. Adheres to your wife? Yes, the two become one flesh. Do you not know? That's what he says. You and I know this is a difficult issue, however. And many of us, if not all of us, have stumbled, at least in our brains and our minds. And I know this, this can be a touchy subject for some, because right now, some of you are just so stained by the guilt of your sexual sin. That's actually what Paul warns us about. He said, basically, sin is sin, but some sins seem to provide a greater stain than others. Have you experienced that? 
at times. This is a dark, deep sin that stains us badly. It's embarrassing. It's humiliating. We don't talk about it. We're going to have a prayer time after this service, and some of you simply don't want to come up for prayer because you are afraid someone is going to look at you and think that you're a pervert because it stained you so deeply. There's all kinds of other things. The abuse, yes. There's sexual abuse. We haven't even started to talk about this. You see how sexual abuse cannot simply be wrong but can totally distort people's understanding of God? Maybe that's your experience here today. You just needed to hear that this wasn't the design purpose of this. But perhaps you've been afraid of it within your marriage. Not married yet because you are afraid that it will stain you like you feel stained right now. There's hope. There is hope for that person. What, is, what does he say? We've got to close this thing out here. What does he say? Where do we go from here? This is the last little bit. He says, flee. And so our responses are simply, how can, how can we respond? First of all, we, I think we need to respond drastically. If this is an issue in, in our lives, and, and I know, I know it is. I know that our church is filled with people who are hurting, who feel trapped, who feel addicted, who have made mistakes, who feel stained. And here's what Paul says, flee. He doesn't say, try to stop. He doesn't say, just, just do what you can. He says, flee, flee. Run away, is what he says. The cultural narrative that you and I listen to will not tell you to run from it. It will say, it's not that bad. I have Netflix friends. I know there's all kinds of sexual immorality on Netflix. I run into it from time to time. The Bible says flee. Flee from this. It's not worth it. Jesus had some very similar words to his friends when he said, he was speaking to the disciples and he was saying, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. He's basically said the standard, here's where the sin is. And basically, I mean, look at that definition. Really, can you raise your hand and say this has never been, you've never once thought about this? You've never once desired this. Of course, we're all guilty of this. But then he says, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. Now, is, that, is he really telling us to do that? I think if it would help, I would say, yes, he is. But if you understand his heart, what he is saying is, you may have to take drastic measures to remove yourself from this particular area. And I would say, if this actually accomplished this, then yes, you need to gouge out your eye and throw it away. Why? Because he said it's better, 
And here's the word members again. It's better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. Because if you ignore this, if you keep using this in a way that is not originally designed, your heart becomes hard. You don't have a new heart. It's not refreshed by the goodness of Jesus. And it becomes hard. And there's no telling when it becomes too hard. When there's no turning back. Do you know the point where there's no turning back? If you don't, this should scare all of us to say that maybe we should pay heed to the drasticness of Jesus' words. He may know what he's talking about. Secondly, I think we can't just respond drastically. We have to respond compassionately. Some of us, this isn't a big issue. I know I, I was thinking through, oh my goodness, that person's going to be, they're going to think I'm crazy. They're going to think this is not part I'm not preaching to them. And here's what I would say is we have no right as Christians, as people, to respond in a harsh way. This is what Galatians says. Brothers, it should say brothers and sisters. If anyone is caught in, a trans, in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of harshness and condemnation. You see that there? What do you see? Somebody? Gentleness. Let's say your child is caught. Let's say your child skinned their knee. Don't do what I sometimes do. Shouldn't be riding so fast. Right? Why aren't you wearing a helmet and knee pads? That's not really good parenting. Here's what good parenting is. Honey, how come you fell? How can I help? Are you okay? Do you mean blow on your cuts? for a bet. Hon, what, what can we do to make sure that this doesn't happen again? This is painful, right? That's how we should treat other Christians who are stuck. You don't have to look around, but I'm sure there are many who are stuck here this morning who don't share where they're at because they're not sure someone's going to respond compassionately. Because they're not sure whether someone who has read Matthew 5 has also read Galatians 6. So let us compassionately help. Yes, people are going to have to step out. Hey, I need help. I'm stuck. I'm stuck in this. I need help. I've misused this. I've adhered to wrong things and I, I have such a pattern in my life. I don't know up from down. I don't know the proper view anymore. I need someone to preach to me that Jesus is enough, that he cares more about my pleasure than I care about my pleasure. I need help. Yes, let us not be condemnation bringers. Let us be gentle. And lastly, let us respond to Jesus. I don't believe you can ever get out of this. I don't believe you can ever see this rightly until you actually first believe this and respond this way. Here's what Jesus says. And I know this. Some of you are drawn to this particular sin because you are seeking an identity that you don't have. You are seeking someone who loves you. You are seeking someone who thinks you're pretty or respectful. You are seeking someone or something that loves you and wants to serve you. And here's what I would say 
get this verse in your head. You're not your own. You were bought with a price. You're going to be a slave to whoever you obey. Why don't you obey the one who bought you with a price? How much does Jesus care about wiping the stains away from your sexual sin? He hung on a cross for it. He bled and died for it. He purchased you from the enemy. He says, believe me, trust me. I'm the only one that can bring hope from this. I'm the only one that can give you an identity that will not fail. I'm the only one that can give you hope for eternity. I'm the only one that can make this all right. And so as the team comes, let me close simply by saying this. This is what we celebrate each week. And yes, it is a celebration. I was told for most of my life, this is the somber moment where you confess all your sins. Yes, it's a point of response for us to confess, to can say, my mission was my pleasure. I'm done. It is a point for that. But it's also a point to not hear Jesus condemning you, but saying, come. Come to me, all you who are burdened with this stain. Come to me, all you who have misused my gifts. Come to me, all you who are wrought with guilt. Come to me. I will release your burden. I will release your burden. And this is an opportunity for us to show an act of trust to Jesus. Here's what it symbolizes. Bread and wine. It symbolizes broken body. It symbolizes shed blood. That stain that you have in your heart can be wiped clean by the stains of blood on Jesus' arms. That body that you have misused can be redeemed by the one who rose in body from the dead. And so it's an opportunity for us to not just confess our sins, but to look to Jesus to heal us from everything.